Heads up, friends. The unofficial Shopify podcast is made by indie entrepreneurs for indie entrepreneurs and may contain material not suitable for all audiences, like swearing or economics. Listener discretion is advised. Customer order updates got you freaking? How about your customer? Let's check in with them. Where is my order? I expect a response in 20 minutes, or I'll leave a one-star review everywhere, including your mom's house. Yikes. What if customers could find their own orders with Ventoff Order Lookup, the Shopify app that makes order tracking a breeze? With Ventoff Order Lookup, customers quickly and easily search for their own orders in your store with their email address or their order number. No more wasting time and losing your sanity trying to track down orders for customers. Try Ventoff Order Lookup today and get your order tracking under control. Just search Order Lookup in the App Store to start your free trial. Oh, I'm so sorry about that. You know what? My order was at the front door the whole time. Five stars. Uh, Hello, my friends. Yet again... We're here thinking about making data-driven decisions. Like, where do we draw the line with our data-driven decisions? You know, I I know I should get eight hours of sleep a night, and I knew, no, I need to get up at 6 a.m. Is determining my bedtime off that? Is that a data-driven decision? I know what my budget is. Is that data? Like, where are our data-driven decisions? How deep do we go with data-driven decisions, right? We... It, I noticed in the first quarter of the year, that's what people get like really interested in going, you know, we got to we got to deep dive into our analytics. We're going to use the data. We're going to figure out our goals and agenda for the year. I th- actually think that's quite admirable. However, I think it's also uh, analytics, statistics, uh, data-driven decisions, KPIs, all that stuff is one of those things where you can look at it superficially. You can know enough to be dangerous. And then you get a point where you go, man, I don't know enough. I know enough to know I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm starting to fear that's where I'm in. We'll call it the trough of disillusionment. And so I asked to Twitter, I was, you know, I was thinking about uh, customer lifetime value and I wanted to, to calculate it easily, correctly, consistently. And so they thought this is an easy question. And I asked on Twitter and that was my first mistake. Ask on Twitter. Um, but I had some folks who were like, no, no, it, it's, it's not as simple as you think, and you're going to screw it up? And I said, wait a second. If that's the case, are, are statisticians gatekeeping how to calculate CLTV? And someone said, maybe, but there's a guy who does know what to do with it, and you should absolutely have him on your show. I thought, that, that sounds good. And then immediately I had a, a good friend who you've heard on the show, Andy Bedell, sees the exchange, texts me, and goes, you got to talk to this guy. Like, he's the man when it comes to CLTV. I'm like, hold on, is there an entire, like, sub-niche in e-commerce devoted to CLTV? And the answer, maybe, we're going to find out, because joining me today is Daniel McCarthy, who's a, an assistant professor of marketing at, at Emory University School of Business. His uh, research specialty there is the, the application of leading-edge statistical methodology to contemporary empirical marketing problems. Oh, my, that is quite the mouthful. We got the guy who's going to break this down for us, but first... I'm your host, Kurt Elster. Tech nasty. And this is the unofficial Shopify podcast. Daniel McCarthy, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. 
Uh, thanks so much for having me and uh, for the very, very, very warm welcome. In your own words, why should we listen to you? I think there are some people who, who would say, you know, okay, you're doing all this fancy math, blah, blah, blah. Maybe I'm 30% off, but it, as long as I'm directionally correct, then it doesn't really matter, you know? And I think you know, there is some conception that as long as you're kind of good enough that um, the mistakes can't be that bad, can they? And uh, I would argue that, yes, for one, you could be off by, you know, factors of three or more in terms of your estimates of how much your customers are worth. Uh, customer lifetime value, in some sense, literally will drive the overall corporate valuation of your firm. And um, and it's going to do it through the unit economics, basically through your ability to kind of carve out a path to profitability if you're not profitable yet, and to, to grow quickly and to sustain revenue growth. Um, so it is absolutely one of the key drivers of that valuation. And I think it it's not well understood because finance hasn't really been using it as much as they should or looking at it in the right in the right way. Um, so I think you know, with the right kind of conceptual framework for it, uh, it, it's pretty easy to see that it is really important and ultimately it can drive whether your firm is going to do well or whether it's going to crash and burn. <laughs> so, you know, that's a, a pretty important thing for, you know, for someone running a business. Is it more important in e-commerce so where you're selling a physical good and that, that long-term cash flow and inventory forecasting is really tough. And so having that additional input of like, okay, we know the value of a customer, we know acquisition cost. I would have to imagine that that helps give you a, a more coherent picture. Yes, yes. I think you know, you're alluding to one of the very valuable use cases, which is FP&A, you know, financial planning and analysis. You can kind of see where the business is heading and, and what your inventory needs might be. Um, ultimately, what your revenue and profit's going to be next year, the year after, the year after that. Um, and ultimately, again, it, it's kind of this simple accounting identity that all the revenue and profit that your firm generates is coming from your customers. I think especially, you know, so you think, okay, well, in some sense, like every business has customers that are placing orders. Um, yeah, maybe some have bigger customers and it's lumpier, uh, others not. But yeah, I think what makes e-commerce a little bit unique is that you have really good visibility into what your customers are doing. So yeah, you mentioned Nike. Uh, and I think the reason why that is somewhat surprising is, is an acquirer for Zodiac is historically they sell most of their product through Foot Locker and you know other shoe stores. And, and so they don't actually even really see like end customer demand. And so they may acknowledge the importance of customer lifetime value and getting those people to repeat buy. But, you know, if they can't see the underlying data, then they can't really do this sort of a thing. That's not an issue uh, to nearly the same extent in an e-commerce setting. In e-commerce, you kind of naturally get a pretty good transaction log for free. There's still issues, yes, I'm sure you're, you're acutely aware, but um, you know, there's just less issues. And so it becomes a lot easier to be able to kind of do this exercise and, uh, and get accurate answers for, uh, for, for these quantities. I think the other thing is that oftentimes e-commerce businesses are um, you know, pretty heavy users of paid paid media. And so they really need to keep track of what customer acquisition cost is and how it varies across their channels. And, uh, and so, you know, some of the inputs are, you know, especially important for, you know, companies like that, like that relative to say like a Hershey's or some big CPG brand where, you know, the nature of their marketing budget is going to be a little bit different. The, you brought up like we Nike and, and big CPG brands. If someone's listening, 
is there a, a a point where this matters? Should I always be paying attention to this? When am I big enough to care? I think is my question. I think you're always big enough to care, um, but you do need to to be mindful of how some of these measures can evolve across your cohorts. That the the customers that you acquire early on may be fundamentally different from the customers that you acquire later. Um, if you're young, uh, this again, it, it, typically young companies are not profitable yet. You know, maybe there are some that are. You know, thankfully, um, actually, it's after Zodiac, I started a second company called Theta. And Theta does nothing but kind of customer-based corporate valuation. So the same sort of exercise that we did at Zodiac, except more geared towards kind of the overall health of, of, of firms. And uh, yeah, in this setting, you know, that's kind of exactly what we would focus on. So yeah, so it's, uh, you know, it, it's always important, but um, if you're young, it's more for, you know, do I have a clear path to profitability and what is like the cleanest trajectory to get there? Uh, whereas if you're mature, uh, in some sense, you don't have to worry as much about business pivots kind of fundamentally changing the economics of your cohorts. It can kind of become more of like a rinse and repeat machine, you know, where you're kind of just mechanically looking at those acquisition channels and, you know, making sure that you're kind of allocating your, your budget uh, optimally. Well, you, just now you mentioned cohorts. And so I, I want to get into that too, where, you know, a customer is not necessarily a customer. We want to be able to segment and understand um different groupings of customers but all right let, let's start with the the big the elephant in the room what's the right model for cltv where am i going wrong here i i surely it can't just be like i open up my spreadsheet and it's uh you know however many purchases and i average this out right like tell me the, the most basic way for me to screw this up well the first thing is and not to kind of beat the cohorts again but uh you got to start with a cohort and oh, it seems okay. like, so I'm looking at it the wrong way around. Yeah, typically you, you want to take a group of people and um, and you want to see, okay, they were born at this time and we're going to track them through their lifetime. And uh, and you can't really do that unless you have some sort of a acquisition cohort. Um, so, you know, ultimately we're going to try and get estimates for every single individual customer's value. Uh, but typically the way that we're going to go about it is we're going to you take a whole bunch of people that were kind of acquired at around the same time and then we're going to look at their activity over their life cycle. And so, um, so you need to have a kind of a clear birth date for those people. And again, thankfully, in, in a Shopify setting, you're going to have that typically, you know, whether it's an email identifier or some sort of more refined, you know, identifier that also merges in ship to and, and whatever else you might have that kind of helps kind of do identity resolution. Um, but once you've kind of identified, all right, these people, they were born at this time, then we'll, the next thing is we want to be able to track like all of their purchase purchases and then their revenue and then ultimately the contribution profitability uh, of that cohort over their life cycle. And so for this, the customer profile within our our cohort, we're looking for when we say their 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 birth date is that when they first discover us, they register on the site, or the first purchase occurs. First purchase, yeah, and it. it this, I think, yeah, to me, I'm not dogmatic about it, but you know, it, it could sound like tomato, tomato. I would define someone who hasn't bought yet, like open up their checkbook and actually, you know, put revenue in your pocket. I'd call them a prospect. Okay. And so certainly it's extremely important to track prospects and how they kind of move through the acquisition funnel. Um, but to me, that's kind of a conceptually distinct process. Um, 
So basically, once the customer the customer is born when they make their very first purchase, and then the key is, um, you know, let's kind of track their purchases uh, after that point, and then typically, you know, as long as the cohort's not extraordinarily old and everyone has clearly kind of churned out of the cohort, there's typically some predictive model where you're going to then say, all right, this is what they've done so far. This is kind of like the trajectory that they've been on, and now based on that, I'm going to make this prediction of what this customer will do. Um, into the future over some, you know, over, over some horizon. And so I, what for my, so my cohort is a group of people who make a purchase, you know, because the people who raise their hand and say, Oh, I'm considering purchasing, you know, they've, they've clicked an ad, they've signed up for new, they have taken some engagement action and we could see that still prospects. And potentially those are prospects who cost me money. If they haven't made a purchase yet, they make uh -huh. that purchase. They have now opened their wallet. There's a big difference seeing between saying, I, oh, yeah, sure, I'd buy, and actually doing it. And so, okay, that's now they're customers. And when we are looking at this data, it sounds like you, you're saying you need to look at it as a cohort. So it's like, all right, grab a group of people who all bought in the same month is the data I want to look at, as opposed to like, yeah, we'll just grab the last two years and lump that together. Yeah, or, you know, last month, last quarter. It, it can depend a little bit on the firm. Typically, you want it to be as narrow as possible, but you want to have enough customers in the cohort to... The problem when you go down to individual people is, um, it's like, it, it sounds nice, like I should be able to run a model on every customer individually, but, you know, first 40 to 80% of the customers are going to make that first purchase and never come back. And so uh, a lot of the, the signal that will come from the sort of predictive models that we would use... Um, they're looking at the patterns kind of across the cohort. They're saying, well, you know, this many peoples have bought no times yet. Uh, this many, or, or repeat bought zero times yet. This many people bought once, this many people bought twice. And you can kind of see like curves and trends that make it a lot easier. So the cohort tends to be a lot more well-behaved and predictable than any individual customer within the cohort. Um, and so typically kind of the first stage, you can think of it as like a first stage model where we're kind of, modeling the cohort's behavior as a whole and then there's like a second stage where we're kind of going within the cohort and saying well now that i know what the cohort's going to do what are you going to do and um and that becomes a much it's much harder to go off the skids when you kind of do it that way does low average order value have you on life support we're losing download one click upsell and you can add 10 to 15 percent more sales to your shopify practically overnight Zipify one-click upsell, aka Zipify OCU, was created by the owner of a $170 million e-commerce brand. OCU boosts your average order value by offering your customers highly targeted pre-purchase and post-purchase upsells. And with the mobile-optimized offer pages that drive sky-high conversions, it's no wonder one-click upsell has made its users an extra $400 million in sales. It only takes a few clicks to install the app, launch your first upsell, and start generating 10 to 15% more revenue overnight. Go to Zipify.com slash Kurt and start your 30-day free trial. That's Z-I-P-I-F-Y dot com slash K-U-R-T. And to get an unadvertised gift, email help at Zipify.com. And ask for the tech nasty bonus. Tech nasty. Clear. I'm I'm trying to reduce noise. So essentially, what we're we're doing here is trying to keep this as statistically significant significant as possible. And when you know we make it too small, potentially our sample size gets too small. And it really like yeah, I can get I can make the prediction, but it's not 
useful. It's not really going to be accurate or useful. Um, Tremendous noise. Yeah, yeah. It's extremely uncertain what any, we'll often say, um, I don't really know what Bob is going to do, but I know what the Bobs are going to do. <laughs> and, uh, okay. and, you know, I, I think there's uh, there's a real element of truth to that. And I think the other aspect of it is if you think about what you're going to do with this information, it's like, okay, you know, everyone has this dream of one-to-one -one marketing, but ultimately you're going to run a campaign, you know, and you're going to target segments. And so immediately you're back in these groups again, you know, so it's, it's not even like you'll be targeting, you know, every single person and sending them a different message. Um, in theory, you know, that's possible, but yeah, I think ultimately, um, you know, you're going to be working at the segment level anyways. And so, you know, you kind of get, um, get the best of both worlds. You get much more predictability and you're working at the level that you're actually going to run your campaign. <laughs> so it's, so. yeah, it, everything realistically is, is always going to be one to many. Even if I'm grouping it into many groups of many, like so I got several of them, it's still one to many. I'm not individually cold emailing customers based on this data. Uh, uh -huh. And, you know, nor should you be. Where do I go from there? Like I've got, we've got the cohort. Now what? Yes, yeah, so you got the cohort. Uh, you've got that data. Um, on purchase incidents and on revenue. Typically, contribution margin data will sit in a different place. Um, if you have that integrated into your transactional data, then great. You know, but I, I'm not sure, like what's, Shopify. What's contribution margin? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's these really Truly, I don't even think I've heard the phrase before. What? We haven't even started with customer acquisition cloth. I know. I know. There's so, you, I've already so was so naive when I tweeted like, oh, what? just give me the easy formula. Like, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people, they'll stop at revenue. And, you know, what I'll often say is, you know, revenue doesn't put food on the table, you know? Like, you have to pay money to buy that product that people then buy from you, you know? And and the key is, how much profit are you making after you do all that stuff? And A hundred percent. It's such yeah. an easy mistake to make. Like, in any business, but particularly... You know, e-commerce and retail, where you we have to resell a good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the the key then becomes okay. What expenses do we include? And uh, and maybe for some of some of our expenses, what proportion of the expense do we include? And uh, and what I mean by that is, for the former, um, if you're selling shirts, well, you know, obviously direct labor and material that you know sources the shirts, um, all the fulfillment expense that you know all the shipping that you have to pay and then all the fulfillment expense that you may be subsidizing when customers make purchases if you you know give them free shipping and and then there's things like returns um returns are a little tricky in the sense that at the time of purchase you won't know if a return will be made yet you know but um typically you can infer what the trajectory of of, of your return rate will be so yeah i think of it as like a return curve like the proportion of the initial sale that I have to give back in returns uh, across my orders as a function of how long it's been since the purchase was made. And, uh, and typically that's going to asymptote at some level, like maybe you offer free returns, but it's for a month. So, you know, returns can happen after that, but you know, first it's going to be a lot less expensive and, you know, people probably won't be returning past that point. And so, you know, maybe after a month, um, 15% of your product will be returned. You're going to want to make sure that you're accounting for that at the time that you buy it because, you know, sure, you know, you made 50 bucks in profit off the shirt, but if you know that, I'm going to give a crazy example, 
if you knew that 50% of that product is going to be returned to your to you and you're going to have to pay a whole bunch of money to kind of like facilitate the return, then you didn't make the 50. <laughs> and so well, um, you're 100% right. It's it's such yeah. it's an important consideration, especially now. Our Q422 data for Black Friday says returns hit a like year over year way up over the previous year. Like potentially returns were at a record level, which mm -hmm. interesting. And so like certainly that's that's a cost center for a business. And in a calculation like this, ah, I could see where not including that you can drastically end up overstating CLTV. Yeah. And where it can be particularly confusing is if you don't like have some sort of prediction for returns, then what can happen is it looks like your cohorts are getting better over time. But the reason why is because um, all those old cohorts, all the returns happened already. They got dinged for it, you know, but the young cohorts, they haven't returned their stuff yet. And so you're like, oh man, there's just so much better. And then you look at it and you're like, wait a minute, because they haven't returned stuff, but you know, they will. <laughs> and so, um, so you, you really want to kind of make sure that you're kind of properly accounting for that. Um, so you have the rough rule of thumb, anything that you have to spend the money or you know that you will spend the money uh, as a function of the orders that come in, you know, that that is a, a variable cost. And contribution profit is just revenue minus all of your variable costs. Um, so, you know, direct labor materials, obviously returns, um, fulfillment, per, uh, payment processing. Um, typically, there's also other kind of effectively variable expenses. Like, you know, there's going to be some proportion of people that are going to pick up the phone, they're going to call you. And so, you know, customer service, you're going to want to make bake some portion of that in. And, you know, I think there's a kind of the inevitable next question of um, how far do you go? I tend to be kind of a hard ass with my variable margin. Um, but if you want it to be marketing material, typically you'll just kind of stop at the immediate direct variable costs. If you really want to use this to run your business, I would further recommend that you incorporate all of your effectively variable uh, overhead expenses. And so this would be, you know, things like, you know, accountants, legal expenses and things like that. You think, that's definitely not variable. You know, I would never include something like that. But yeah, if you look at a company like Microsoft, they're still spending 10% of their revenue on SG&A. And um, ultimately, there's some portion of your overhead that's going to continue to grow. You know, that you'll still need more lawyers. You're still going to need to pay your executives more. So you end up, if I use CLTV or, you know, are we going with CLTV or CLV? I'm just used to saying CLTV. Um, I, I, I like both. Okay. <laughs> Uh, CLTV, the way I've traditionally seen it done, it's just like looking at top line revenue. And the danger in that I'm hearing is because it's revenue, not profit, if we have variable expenses that are going to increase as our order volume increases, then potentially our own success eats us alive. And like just they becomes a particular problem in, in retail and e-commerce with a physical good. Um, because of those, those input costs to make the sale, and so our we want, we want the our our cohort. We want to calculate for our, um, we we want, and then we want our CLTV to be contribution profit. All right, I'm with you so far. At what point do I get a number out of this thing? <laughs> we need one more acronym. Okay. CAC. Ah, customer acquisition cost. And this is the other reason why you really need to pay attention to, you, you need to kind of do the 
that contribution profit calculation is because, you know, what the heck are you going to compare revenue to CAC? You know, one's a top line measure, the other's an expense. And it's like, well, if we just focus on revenue alone, like I totally get that. You know, I want to get lifetime revenue and track that across my cohorts. And that's a useful measure. But as soon as you start de deducting expenses, it's like, why well, deduct one expense, but not the others? <laughs> um, so yeah, so you need to deduct CAC. And that's uh, just a whole other ball of wax. So I'll, I'll spend- <laughs> Yeah, that could be its own episode. I always joke and I teach this class called Customer Lifetime Valuation. And um, I, I spend one lecture and have a full homework on CAC and how you define it and what to include, what not to include, and how people cheat. And uh, I'll often joke at the beginning of class that I could spend a whole semester just on CAC. <laughs> so, um, and like, so usually, yeah. We traditionally think of CAC as like, well, you know, what, do, what am I paying to Zuckerberg this month, right? Like, that's how we think of it. Uh, how am I wrong there? Uh, yeah, to some, to some degree for a business like Shopify, you know, to the extent that Facebook is, you know, one of the biggest uh, kind of marketing channels, um, then, you know, that, that wouldn't be incorrect. But the devil's in the details. So, um, you know, first you're going to have a whole bunch of different channels. And there's a question of, do you want to use this for kind of more kind of reporting purposes or for tactical customer acquisition purposes? And the reason that distinction is important is because for the former, it may be more helpful to think about your blended or average CAC. And, uh, and for the latter, it may be more important to focus on your marginal CAC. And, uh, and the main difference between those two is that uh, your average CAC or your blended CAC is it's just the total amount that you spent on Zuckerberg or, you know, all those other yeah, channels. Yeah, Google, it, where, whatever your PPC ads are is, TikTok, is yeah. probably going to be the majority of that. Yeah, Google. Yeah, and then you're going to divide that by the number of customers that you acquired. Now, the number of customers you acquired, those customers, they could have been acquired through Facebook, but they could also have been acquired through, you know, organic channels. They could have been acquired through some podcast that you did or an event that you went to. Um, and and so, you know, each of those different channels will have different costs. And, uh, and obviously, you know, organic, I, I always say organic with the, the quotes because uh, truly there is no truly organically acquired customer. Typically, there's something that you spend that kind of got their, you know, got their attention and, and brought them in. Um, so essentially, you know, that average CAC figure, it's, it's averaging across the, the CACs of all of those different channels that you had used. And, uh, and that can be quite different from this other number that the market marketing department's going to be most interested in, which is, all right, imagine I spent another hundred dollars on Facebook. How many customers will I bring in incrementally? And, uh, and you think, well, can I just get that from that first number? And the answer really is no, you know? So you know, typically, you know, if you have some sort of an experimentation platform or you run some suppression test that can help you get an estimate of that marginal CAC, you know, what is the, the marginal cost of that next acquired customer? Um, and that's going to be extraordinarily important for, for your business, but it's just kind of a different number. Okay. So far, CAC sounds like the easiest one to figure out here, at least you know, within the realm of a Shopify store owner. So I, it sounds like that's all of our, our prerequisites to accurate measurement. Well, we haven't even touched the predictive model. 
but uh <laughs> <laughs> right this is this is looking into the past of what happened we can also yeah, this is... yeah predict all right now what's going to occur going forward oh my god all right all right what next keep going yeah so i'm like we're going through like the various stages of hell <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah i mean get the bookkeeping right it seems like like the the bookkeeping should be the easiest part but still it, it's been surprising to me how uh infrequently i'll see people really like grappling with all that um the the predictive model the good thing is the predictive model in some sense is the easier part if you either if you've contracted out to the right vendor you know obviously this is something that we do every day all the time um or you know you've kind of you know what the right validations are and can kind of empirically assess how accurate you are and i know this goes back to the twitter thread a little bit that um in some sense, customer lifetime value, well, not in some sense, it is a, a a difficult prediction problem. And I think a lot of people, they'll kind of say, all right, well, you know, here's my CLV formula, plug and chug, you know, just get my inputs, get my R, get my M, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and let it rip. And the problem is, it's not really acknowledging that it's prediction. And maybe that formula worked, you know, but maybe it didn't. And you know, I think a lot of people, they'll just kind of run the formula take out that number and treat it as truth and that, um and they that's won't... my issue like when you see a, a pre especially a predictive one i look at it and i go that sounds like does it pass the gut check sure i have no idea if this thing is right or not and it's certainly you know if i'm looking at cltv and like clavio uh, it's not like this thing is telling me it it's statistical confidence yeah, yeah, and uncertainty is a whole other ball of wax that I'm not even. <laughs> All right, that we save that for the fourth episode. <laughs> it's one of those things, and I alluded to it at the the start of the episode because I kind of figured this is where it was going to go. But you know, it's pulling a thread on a sweater, where it's like mm -hmm. once you scratch that surface of like, hey, maybe there's something here I'm missing, and then you talk to someone who knows it, and it's just like it, you're you're just peeling back layer upon layer. The thing I've been thinking uh, throughout this is. No one likes to be wrong, but there are scenarios where I'm happy to discover I was wrong, right? Where it's like, oh, this is so much more complicated and interesting than you knew. And that, right. so I was wrong about it. All right. Oh. Please continue. Where were we? Prediction. Prediction. All right. <laughs> yes. You got that data. You got to run through the model. Um, obviously, you know, we, we have the models that we think work well. And I think, you know, we've, at Zodiac, I think by the time of the acquisition, we'd run our models on 250 different companies. And at Theta, we've run it on probably an additional 150. So, you know, we got a pretty strong prior, you know, just based on like, well, you know, this worked, this didn't um, across all those different prior companies. But whatever model you use, um, I think the the yardstick, you know, the, the report card, you know, that you kind of whip out to evaluate, like, is my model getting an A or is it getting a C is uh, should be the same. And um, you know, just some basic things like let's remove the final year of our data. Let's pretend we didn't see it. Let's train our model and everything before that point. Predict what's going to happen in that final year. And then compare how our predictions stacked up to what we actually observed. Oh, and, um, very clever. It's called, yeah, like a holdout validation is, is what they call it. But specifically, it's kind of a, a cross-time holdout validation. Some people, they'll they'll do the opposite. They'll do uh, in a cross-customer validation where they'll say, I'm going to pretend like I didn't see the data for 20% of my customers, and I'm going to predict that from the other 80%. And that's a much easier um, yardstick. So 
you know, we typically would not recommend that because it's so easy to look good on. Um, so yeah, leave out that last year, predict it, see how well the predictions hold up. And, uh, and then the, the question becomes, you know, what, like, what are our tests? You know, what, how, how, how do we define good? And, um, and there's a few, I'd say that the key things that we'll focus on are, are we tracking the evolution of, of the stream of purchases and revenue over time? Well, you know, and, um, and then the second is, are we like differentiating the good customers from the bad customers recently? Well, so, you know, this is kind of like what the distribution of purchases would have been for, uh, for the holdout period. And this is what I would have predicted them to be. And that allows us to say, not only am I kind of getting it right at the aggregate level, you know, for the entire cohort, but also, you know, I can kind of pick out the good ones from the stinkers and, um, and, and that's typically, you know, kind of where we stop. There's like a whole bunch of other things that we'll evaluate as well, but broadly speaking, they kind of fall into one of those two flavors, you know, kind of temporal validation and kind of cross customer validation. I'm so tired of losing revenue. Are you tired of losing revenue to abandoned carts and lapsed audiences? Of course you are. Did you know that anonymous shoppers who visit your store on their phones can't receive abandoned cart emails from Shopify? Pop quiz. What do Warby Parker, Dr. Squatch, and Blendjet have in common? They all turn to retention.com to maximize their growth and reclaim lost revenue. It's money falling from the sky. With retention.com's reclaim solution, you can leverage industry-leading identity resolution technology to increase your SMS and email flow revenue by up to 10 times. We am um, 10xing our list, okay? Like 10x. Like I'm not even joking. Onboarding is quick and easy and implementation takes just hours, not months. Plus, retention.com's flexible pricing is based purely on incremental performance, so you only pay for what you get. Don't miss out on this amazing opportunity to grow your Shopify store and reclaim lost revenue. Visit retention.com to learn more and schedule your demo today. So I know, I love this this concept. So it's essentially, like if I know in 2022, we did, uh, our model says our, our CLTV for customers who purchased in January, you know, is a hundred dollars. And if I then use my model with data to try and predict 2022 by only using data up to, you know, 2021, December 31st, then I see how far off it is. What's, what's the benchmark for good or bad? Like how far off before you're like, this is just completely useless. Yeah, usually, and that's the great thing about these kind of visual diagnostics. You know, so we'll look at this chart, and it's like time, you know, orders placed. And so typically orders placed from a cohort, customers, they're like melting ice, they're like a melting ice cube. You know, it's just kind of how quick is the melt. And um, it's a good, good visual analogy. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, basically, you'll kind of look at this curve of orders from the cohort, and it kind of always looks like that. You know, it just sharply falls at the beginning, flattens out. And then the hope is that it goes relatively like flat, maybe even slightly lips up at the end hmm. if you're a good business. And so you know, typically when you look at kind of what you would have expected that trajectory to be, you'll just know like, am I getting that or not? You know, am I kind of, or is it clear that I'm like inflecting down too much? Like I'm killing the cohort more than, than it looks like they, they, they've been killed. Um, or am I like way overly optimistic? Like, 
the actual curve is like this, but I'm kind of coming in like this, you know? Um, so, so for that one, you know, you kind of know, <laughs> um, it just kind of pops from the page when you look at the right figures. It's kind of, it's just like how statistically rigid we are. And then at the very end, you're like, all right, you're going to validate it by eyeballing that bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like you're looking, it's, you're looking at data, it's just visualized at a chart. Um, and you're like watching that graph, but yeah, kind of funny. If I'm a Shopify store owner, how the heck do I do this? Like other other tools that will provide this? It sounds like these models are very proprietary. Actually, they're not. You know, there's a version of the model you could run in Excel. And um and I actually I teach that model in my my CLV class. And it's a, it's a pretty good model. Depending on your level of technical aptitude, that could be a good place to start. Um, I, I've got a number of other resources I'd be more than happy to share. Run me through some of these resources. And of course, like I include all the stuff in in the show notes. Tap or swipe up on the episode art to get to the show notes. The Excel model, uh, so I teach that in my course, and even that is not very well gatekept. Uh, so there's a spreadsheet that we use, and uh, and I even you know went to the extent of creating YouTube videos. I take a a publicly accessible transaction log. The Excel model is there available on Dropbox, and then there's YouTube videos to kind of handhold you all the way through the running of the model. And in fact, there's another YouTube video that I created uh, where we can take that fitted model and then use that to get CLV for a cohort. And so contribution margin, you know, CAC, discount rate. Uh, we didn't talk about discount rate yet, but that, that part's pretty easy. <laughs> oh, man. And, and then kind of work your way all the way through to, to CLV for the cohort. Um, so, so that, you know, I'd say the good thing about that is that you don't need to know any fancy language. Um, you just need to kind of follow the rules and you kind of need to just do, do what you're being asked to do. And so once you've kind of internalized that, you've kind of run through and replicated what was done in, in those videos, then you just kind of delete that transaction log, put in your transaction log for your cohort and, uh, and then do it again. Obviously you need to kind of address some of the numbers, you know, you know, but kind of once you've done that, then, then you would have the CLV for, you know, for your cohorts. So I think, yeah, that, that is probably the path of least resistance. Uh, obviously there's also the academic work, you know, for those who are real masochists and want to stare at lots of Greek letters, but you know, full transparency there, there's, um, the papers are all out there, you know, they're, they're available for free, uh, for those who kind of know the right place to look. But even if you're saying like, okay, this is, it's too complex for me to apply this myself. It, there is still so much value in conceptually understanding this. Um, or, and even if you're like, all right, I vaguely get it, understanding the pitfalls that have been outlined here. And also, even if you don't know how to run the models yourself, you know how to say, this is a good one, this is not. Or, you know, again, if, if you're speaking with someone else who's providing you with their model, this is what I need to see to know that I trust your model. And, um, and so even if it's not me, and, and the great thing is, even if you're completely non-technical, and we've had this happen a couple of times where um, you have some vendor and they're kind of pitching you on some model. Don't give them the last year. Oh, and so they can't, brilliant. They can't cheat. Yeah, they'll they'll do their best with, and maybe they're doing a, a holdout validation of their own. It's like a held, on, on the held out, you know, on, on the data that already has the holdout period. Um, but then there's literally nothing they can do. And you say, all right, just give me your predictions. You know, give me this, give me that, <laughs> and the other thing. And I'm going to see how well your predictions were or what actually 
you know, transpired over that period of time. That's so good. Um, that's so good. Yeah. It's, I like uh, that a lot. Yep. Now so, I'm yeah, like hoping we, a vendor will hit me up like, oh, hey, we could we could figure out your CLTV. Go ahead. <laughs> Let's see how yeah, you do. Yeah, it, it really makes you, as a, as a vendor, um, that makes you a little uncomfortable, you know? Because it's as if you're being evaluated and graded, like literally. Um, but, uh, but yeah, then, you know, that's as clean as you can get. There's no, there's no way to cheat that. The, okay. So I don't know, I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling dangerous. I know enough to be dangerous now, which I, I appreciate. And I, I want to go down this rabbit hole more, but I want to know how do you apply this as a business, uh, valuation model? Cause like traditionally you would just go, here's revenue times multiplier there. Like we picked a number out of the air. Uh, uh -huh. when, you know, the reality is if I'm selling, you know, and I got a 50% discount and I'm losing money hand over fist, it's still going to look like top line revenue, you know, multiplied times 3.5. This sounds like a way better way to get an accurate gauge of business value. Walk me through yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so this can help inform valuation in a few ways. Uh, the first way is kind of traditional, take whatever traditional valuation method you prefer, you know, discounted cash flow valuation or some multiple of EBITDA, you know, and, um, and so let's say you want to use that method, then essentially what this can help you do is kind of inform that model. It'll give you a more accurate projection of what future, you know, revenue and EBITDA is going to be. And, uh, and the way it's going to do that is it's going to, again, first project out this is how many customers we've acquired so far. This is what I would project over the next handful of years. And then the next level for the model is, uh, this is how many repeat orders I expect to get from those customers after acquisition. And so you've got all those existing customers. You kind of run that model that we talked about to get what we expect them to do in the future. And then typically you'll kind of make some assumption that the customers you have not acquired yet are in some ways kind of comparable to recently acquired customers, you know? It's a good place to start. Um, and then you have, you know, average order value and uh, and that gets you to revenue. And so if you knew that that model predicted really well, you know, on that holdout data period, um, you know, that gives you some confidence that at least it's a reasonable baseline expectation for what, you know, revenue is going to be. Um, and then obviously after you kind of factor in your expenses, that can get you to, you know, whatever measure of uh, profitability you might be most interested in. Um, that's kind of, you know, that's way number one, uh, way number two is, um, to just stick with unit economics. And so instead of, it's like, keep, keep doing the, the traditional revenue thing that you might've done, but, um, you're going to really want to know what is my LTV? What is my CAC? And, um, and how has that been evolving across my cohorts and how's that been evolving within each of my acquisition channels? So Facebook, Instagram, you know, Google, et cetera, and they're all going to have different customer acquisition costs. And so it can be very helpful to kind of look at how many customers have I acquired over time and how has the composition been changing? You know, before maybe I acquired a lot of customers through referral and organic channels, maybe now much more are coming through the Facebook ads. And that can kind of help us understand, like, do I have good economics overall on like an overall blended basis? And are the economics still good, you know, within each of those different acquisition channels? And if I've kind of calculated all the numbers correctly, 
that's just super important information to know because you'll basically know like, yeah, my business is healthy. You know, I, I may not know kind of where I end up, but to the extent that people are using those revenue multipliers, I know that this should kind of put me at the higher end of those revenue multiples, you know, because I actually have good economics. And, uh, and when I spend my money on marketing, I'm going to bring in more customers and they're going to bring in a whole bunch of value that, uh, that, you know, exceeds how much I spent to, to, to acquire them in the first place. No, um, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, those are the two that I would, um, I think those are two ways that I would focus on it. All right. So the, the thing I want to close on, so I, I want to hear about your, your current venture after it, Nike acquired Zodiac, uh, in 2018, you turned around, you're like, look, I can't stay away. You co-found something called Theta Equity Partners. What the heck is that? Yeah, so uh, Theta Equity Partners is not a hedge fund or a private equity firm. So typically these days, we'll just kind of go by Theta just to avoid the potential for confusion. Uh, but we basically just do, we do everything now that Zodiac did as well as customer-based corporate valuation. And so you can think of us as like the doctor. And uh, to the same extent that we go in and, and get an annual checkup and see what our cholesterol is and see what our vitamin D levels are and red blood cell count and all the rest of it. Um, you know, we basically do that for companies. You know, so we'll say, this is your unit economic, you know, annual checkup. Hopefully you should be doing it every year. Now, inevitably um, you have some sort of a health scare and, uh, and that kind of prompts you to come back in. Um, so, you know, we, we understand that people don't want to do it every single, you know, every single month or quarter. But, um, you know, I think that the analogy really holds that uh, there's just a lot of companies that are the walking dead and um, or, you know, they're just unhealthy. They need to kind of whip themselves into shape, but they don't even know that they're unhealthy because they've never gotten these numbers done, you know. And so and so we will kind of help them through that whole process. Um, so we'll do that for PE firms that are looking to see is the company I'm looking to buy healthy and then we'll do that for companies as well uh, where we're looking to help their executives typically understand like is my business healthy and if so like where are the pockets of value where are the segments of my business that are weak and that can kind of help them think about you know strategically should I reallocate my resources from the weak parts of my business to the stronger ones kind of does sound valuable but I can also see where that it might intimidate people like do you find that clients uh are sometimes nervous about this process um i think you know first there's always kind of the circle of trust that imagine that we do find that the business is not so healthy um only they will know about it and so you know it's not like there's any sort of a risk if the numbers don't look great that it's going to put them in trouble yeah um, you're, okay you're right you're not like sure all right just, we're going to run this analysis and we're going to send it to you and then CC the Wall Street Journal. Like it, it's, <laughs> it's done in confidence. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, you know, most companies, at least for internal purposes, it can't hurt to know the numbers. Um, and in the best case, it can actually, you know, be the difference between life and death. You know, going back to the beginning, I hear all the time people, I, w I want to make data-driven decisions. That's that's what we should do is data-driven decisions. That What you've laid out for us, this is the way. Like if that if it's truly what you want, it sounds like this is a really, um, a really informed, methodical, reliable way to do this. And quick, I know we just spent you know so much time talking through all these details, but you know we'll we'll run through the numbers in a couple weeks. 
you know, so it's not a long process. Um, so it's, uh, it's really, it shouldn't be intimidating in that way either. It's not going to be this multi-month process. Um, you know, typically it's, uh, it's pretty quick. Oh, okay. G- yeah. G- good to know. Uh, all right. Where can people learn more about you? Um, yeah, so, uh, certainly there's my website, you know, danielminmccarthy.com. I'll share that, uh, on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm quite active, uh, and I do kind of post different things on different websites. So, um, you know, so it could be helpful to, to look at both uh, on Twitter, D underscore McCar, M-C-C-A-R. Yeah. LinkedIn. I don't even know. Search is terrible on LinkedIn. <laughs> Isn't it? And if you ever found that. Um, yeah. It's a, it's like, no, I'm 100% sure I'm connected to this person. And they're like, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, yeah. LinkedIn. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think those would be a great place to start. Uh, we've got great content on the Theta blog. So we'll do these deep dives into Warby Parker and a lot of other names that uh, you've probably heard of where, you know, we take no prisoners. You know, we'll we'll say that this company, we, we said Wayfair's equity is worth nothing. Um, you know, we said Warby Parker was undervalued. So, you know, we'll kind of come in both directions, bull and bear, uh, but we'll really lay it out. So we'll kind of go through a whole bunch of detail about how we kind of came to those conclusions. Um, so I think that that's kind of another third place that uh, could be look, good to look. Uh, ThetaCLV.com is the website. I'm adding all of these into the show notes, but for sure I'm like going through that Theta blog. I want to see, <laughs> I want to see these valuations. I want to see what you think. Uh, Daniel McCarthy, this has been illuminating uh i learned a lot i learned where i was totally ignorant about some statistical things and i loved it thank you so much for educating us today oh thanks so much for having me this was uh this was really great (laughs) (laughs) yeah the audience just goes crazy at the end of every episode yeah it's it's wild uh, it's a standing ovation it's the best i know they're all (laughs) out there (laughs) the unofficial shopify podcast is brought to you by loop Loop is a returns management platform that makes returns profitable and stress-free for you and your shoppers. Loop offers automated returns, exchanges, and store credit options to lower costs and increase revenue. Do you want to offer at-home pickup or boxless drop-offs? Need to lower return costs or increase repeat purchases? How about all of the above? That's what's possible with Loop. Loop delivers customized returns management solutions for Shopify merchants of all sizes, like Studs, Princess Polly, Code Epoxy to turn returns into returning customers. Find out why thousands of Shopify merchants choose Loop to manage their returns at loopreturns.com. That's loopreturns.com.